The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Each business is unique and operated individually of others in the same industry. What they have in common is the potential path to success. Welcome to The Second Stage with your hosts, Jeffrey Cadlick and Brendan Anderson. In today's program, we'll address the obstacles that many businesses find on that path to success and discuss what entrepreneurs and their businesses are doing to stay ahead of the curve. Now, here's Brendan Anderson and Jeffrey Cadlick. Welcome, welcome, welcome to The Second Stage. I'm uh, here with uh, Spencer Williams. Spencer is the president, owner, and owner of Westpaw Design. Um, Westpaw Design, you can find them at uh, www.westpawdesign.com. Um, Spencer is a fifth-generation Mon- Montanian. I think I'm going to say that correctly. Uh, grew up on a ranch in uh, Columbus, Montana. Uh, his love for the home state led uh, Williams back to Montana after receiving a bachelor's degree from, uh, from uh, Middlebury College. Uh, with a strong desire to, and I don't hear this much anymore, to make stuff, uh, he, he acquired uh, Westpaw Design, I believe at the age of 23. Uh, since 1996, he has grown uh, the, the Boisman Montana business into a world-class manufacturer of eco-friendly pet toys and beds for dogs and cats. Uh, it, was, it was a founding member of the Pet Sustainability Coalition, which thrives to be a leading organization for sustainable advancement in the pet industry. And in 2013, Pet uh, Westpaw Design became the first pet pr- uh, pet product producer to become a, a certified B Corp uh, in 19. Or I'm sorry, in 2015, um, it uh, became Montana's first benefit uh, corporation. Wow, that's that's really cool. Um, and uh, and and also as exciting as in 2016, it was recognized by Forbes magazine as one of the America's best uh, small companies. Um, you can reach uh, Spencer, I mentioned earlier, on the website, uh, westpawdesign.com, or on Twitter, at westpawdesign. Spencer, thank you so much for uh, joining us on the second stage. You're very welcome. Happy to be here. I was, uh, As I was kind of thinking about this, this show, I was thinking about how you know, we often have authors on the, on the show that, have, uh, you know, that are they're talking about things, and we talk about you know, certain uh, concepts and ideas, and I was... Smiling because I think you know we've had Bo Burlingham on, who's very active in the Forbes magazine side. We've had uh, some people talking about B corporations. We've had uh, Patrick Carpenter at the Great Game of Business. We, you know, and I'm kind of thinking about all these wonderful things. And what's cool about it is you've actually kind of you've lived a lot of those. The, you've you've lived and done a lot of the things that people just kind of talk about. Pretty exciting. That's correct. It is exciting. Yeah. Those, 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 all those different things have really helped our our business sort of grow and differentiate, but also um, really added a lot of uh, of purpose to our work and to the people's lives who work here. That's great. It's great. I so so tell me how you know, and and I love, and I was uh, for those uh, listeners, I actually met uh, Spencer in, in person at the uh, at the Small Giants conference in uh, in Colorado, and uh, so I got to hear your story. Uh, you were kind enough to share it with the people there. 
so I kind of know the answers, but I think it's important everybody else does. How do you find yourself uh, in the manufacturing business at such an early age? Well, as you, as you mentioned earlier, Brendan, I, I, I was really interested in, in making a product. And um, I grew up on a ranch, so I enjoyed doing things uh, with my hands, uh, you know, whether it was welding or doing woodworking or, or being out and, and helping to, to, to run, run the ranch. And so for, for me, the idea to actually um, to produce something, to, to, to make something worthwhile, was sort of, I guess, born into me. And um, what was really helpful, though, in, in my early career, I graduated college a little bit ahead of schedule, ended up working and selling institutional research to money managers. And that experience was really helpful for me because it was at a time before the Internet was really happening. So we were delivering a lot of information um, via FedEx, printed reports that we'd, we'd mail out, and, and occasionally the, the newfangled email. And what I realized is that it for me, left uh, sort of this wanting in my in my mind of of how, how could we make something and actually produce something that somebody would enjoy and get pleasure out of, and so the idea of wow, you know, I was raised with this idea of of, of making and producing great great things. Let's let's try to do that in manufacturing, and I was just very fortunate to come upon this business that was for sale, and um, and at the same time wanting to relocate back to my home state, and so I was just uh, in the right place at the right time, and. Getting into manufacturing helped me sort of, you know, lead into that desire and of, of making something, something to bring joy to people's lives. So, how does a it was you bought it when you were twenty three? Yes, that's right. So, so, how does a twenty three year old decide? Hey, I'm going to go buy a manufacturing business. <laughs> you know, uh, there's something to be said for being maybe too young to know, or not not yeah, having the. With you. <laughs> You know, not having a good sense of fear um, yet, but um, I was I was really really ready for just a change, and I felt like if I if I could acquire this little company, and the the woman who had started it was an awesome uh, craftsperson, great sewer, and she developed this really great business around some high quality product, but didn't want to deal with the, the the challenge and the opportunity of working with employees and scaling the business, and that's exactly what I wanted to do was work with people to help create a great business, and. Uh, so it was super fortunate, as I mentioned, that that um, I was in Bozeman. Uh, I had come out here from Vermont, where my fiancé at the time, now wife, uh, we were both living in Vermont, and I'd come out here to help my brother, um, believe it or not, write a database for his business that was just getting started, and I had some skills in, in, in that, and, and was in town, and somebody said, you know, there's this great company called Pet Pals for sale, um, and you like pets, you like manufacturing, maybe you got to go talk with this woman and and so we did we kind of struck it up uh, struck up a good relationship and and it it happened so fast so <laughs> not only was i too young to be afraid of what i was doing but it happened so fast i probably didn't have much of a chance to second second guess myself and um and so jumped in with both feet and what was really helpful is that um the business had been really well structured around consistent product and quality and, and, and a good customer base to start with. And for the first six months, I realized I had better not change a thing. I'd better figure out how this business makes money and what the customers need from us, and then I can make some changes. And, and that's what I did, is try not to change anything for six months and, and just just make the sales, make the product happen, and then, and then start to innovate in design, marketing, and, and, and it grew from there. So I, you know, it uh, you shared with, uh, with the small giants community, uh, things weren't always um, rosy. 
you uh, you uh, once you kind of got in the business, you realized that there's uh, that uh, you know, there's there's downsides to being in business. Can you uh, share some of that uh, that story with us? Well, yeah, and let me share early because we're in the early days too. Just thinking about when I first caught into the business, um, the business was sort of stagnant. Uh, there hadn't been new product for a couple of years, and and furthermore, when I acquired the business, I had acquired also. Um, the, the purchases that were in, in transit. And so literally on the first days of me owning the business, I took receivables, I took, took receipt of some fabric for a product line that was, was really um, tanking in sales and uh, never used that fabric for any product. So I had an immediate cash crunch upon um, getting into the business. And I remember the prior owner telling me some great advice. She said, call all the cash on delivery customers and get their orders first so you get paid quickly. So I started off with this incredible uh, urge to, to make sure we had cash, right? That we had a cash flow to grow the business. So I had some early challenges to, to get that um, cash we needed to sustain the business. But later on, as, after many years of strong growth and, and strong profitability, it wasn't until uh, 2012 uh, that we actually lost money for the first year. And what happened in that year is we took our eye off the ball when it comes to the, the profitability of the product we were manufacturing. And because we are unlike a lot of companies who source product overseas, we actually manufactured them all right in our own facility, in our own factory in, in Bozeman, Montana. And so the processes and the methods of manufacture directly relate to how profitable we are as a company. And in that year, 2012, we had made some changes in the way in which we measured our productivity of our production line. And it was a values-based decision that was really important for us because Here's what we had found out. Over many years, uh, we had had an incentive pay system for people in production, which meant that their pay was directly linked to how many parts they produced. And it was the only part of the company where we had that system. Everywhere else, it was traditional hourly or salary pay. Salary pay. And, um, and it felt unfair in our organization, and we wanted to change that. And I think it was a great decision. It was in line with our values. However, we didn't have a business case to back that up. And so what happened is is we decoupled the the measure of productivity, which was how much compensation somebody was receiving for the effective uh, work they were doing, and and then we lost sight of how we could uh, measure that productivity because we had a measurement system in place, obviously, to keep them compensated fairly, right? That all went away. And what happened is, is our, we became much less productive very quickly at a time when we were also significantly growing sales. So it's one of those scenarios where a company is literally growing broke. So the faster our sales grew, the more we had to produce the parts. However, we were producing them less and less efficiently, costing us more and more money. And it snowballed. And 2012 became a, a big year of loss for us. And uh, not only that, but our customers started experiencing backlogs in their shipments, which was very unusual from Westpaw Design because we ship product within 24 hours year-round. And uh, that made for some unhappy customers And when they started realizing their product was two weeks away from, from getting shipped. So we had to make some quick changes. And I remember uh, that the, the people in, in production, 
they were happy to, to make a change, obviously, uh, away from peace pay and this incentive pay system that we had. And they were also happy to get back to a system where their productivity could be measured, so they knew they were creating value in their day. And so what we ended up doing was taking feedback from the employees, and we got a clarity on how we'd create a measurement system that tracked efficiency of every pr- product produced in the factory floor and accountable to somebody's efficiency, but not linking it to their pay any longer, so that they could just see if they were at 80%, 90%, or 100%, maybe even 120% efficient on that work. And that helped to not only bring line of sight and clarity to that efficiency, but it also helped the employee know how they were adding value. And so we corrected that by the end of the year um, 2012. We had a plan in place. Uh, quarter one, 2013, became our most profitable quarter ever. And that was really attributable to all the hard work by the employees here and getting us right-sided to a good business process that uh, helped us sustain our organization. No, that's great. And and, and I do want to, you know, kind of maybe parlay this, the next conversation to, you know, open book management, the great game of business and, you know, and uh, the people that read the book by uh, Jack Stack and Bo Burlingham. Maybe talk about, you know, how did you, how did you hear about it and what was your first reaction? Because I know, I know what my first reaction was when I heard about it. Well, you know, it's, it's great you'd mentioned the great game of business because that open book management is, it was a core part of the transparency that we we had to bring to the employees to get us to change the way the organization was being run in, in the manufacturing space. And um, and so the great game of business has been really pivotal in our success, not only in helping us correct 2012, but also in helping us build on successes since then. And and I first read the book by, by Jack Stack and Bo Burlingham, probably early 2000s. And I remember my first reaction was, this is exactly in line with how this company could be run. How do we get there was my question. How do we get to the place where we can be transparent with our financials? And what we had done for years and years and years was shared our major business decisions with our employees almost from day one. And, um, but we never shared financials. We shared revenues and so, and so forth, you know, top-line numbers. And the biggest obstacle I had to fully adopting the great human business was the perception amongst business people that you shouldn't share financials because, A, either all the employees will think the company is so profitable, the owner is so rich that they don't have to work hard, or B, that there's going to be conflict over what uh, one person's earning and, and what another person's earning. I found that both of those are absolutely not even issues because the, the first issue, once the employees actually see how much money it takes to run an organization, and how much taxes are paid and how little is left at the end of the day, they actually appreciate greatly the work they do and will work very hard to make that business successful. And secondly, we never share individual compensation. That's not a company decision. That's an individual decision. And so those two issues, once I got over those and realized they weren't part of an obstacle any longer, we were able to start rolling out financial literacy training to our employees and institute the great game of business with great success. The, but, but you're you're so you were predisposed to be willing to to share that because I would say that you know ninety nine point some percentage and I don't have that statistically accurate but percentage of the of the small business owners I meet at a 
you know, an EO event or we meet, you know, we're, you know, blessed to talk to as part of evolution or whatever, just are really, you know, they just, they just, you know, that just that mental block of getting over it is very difficult for them. But you didn't have that. It sounds like you were, your, your values were close enough that you guys didn't have that hurdle. Is that fair? That is fair. That is fair. And I had seen open book management work in our company in non-financial ways and in very difficult times. Um, uh, two of those occurrences I can mention were very challenging. One was a relocation of the factory over a mountain pass to another community, so almost 25 miles away. That was handled in an open book management format where everybody knew what the risk was. And in doing so, we had buy-in and commitment and kept all those employees. Also, when we had in, in the Great Recession 2008-2009, we had to go through a, a phase of reducing hours and then eventually uh, a very limited layoff, which was very painful. That was handled in a transparent, open book way. So I had clear examples of very difficult times um, where we had to be real transparent in line with our values with our employees, and it worked out really well for the employees and the company. Not all of those things were what everybody wanted to happen, of course, but um, I could see open book and its power. So when it came to sharing financials, I had a little bit of confidence that, that uh, from past experience that this would work. And it was really, um, I think that my own experiences predisposed me to the fact that open book could work in financial ways as well. But, no, that's great. And, yeah. and quite frankly, I think you're, you're very unique in that way. Some people need to really kind of uh, study it for a long time. And, and me probably being one of them, it took me a little while. Hey, we're going to take a quick break. Um, I am on with uh, Spencer Williams. If you would uh, like to reach us on Twitter, it's evolution underscore CP. Uh, you can always join the discussion using hashtag the second 2ND stage um, or, or always email us at, at uh, the second stage at evolutioncp.com. Uh, and you can always download all of our latest episodes at uh, Voice America Business Channel. That's voiceamerica.com. And uh, lastly, I'd like to spank. Thank not spank. Thank our sponsor RSM LLP, formerly McGladry, uh, the leading provider of assurance tax consulting services focused on small and mid-sized businesses nationwide, uh, with more than sixty-seven hundred people in seventy-five cities. With that, we'll be back in a couple minutes. So, uh, on the second stage. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. This is Davis Love III, Ryder Cup captain and Team McGladry member. McGladry is about building relationships. That's the kind of team I want to be a part of, a team that builds deep understanding of each client's vision and unique way of doing business. The same attributes I look for and the partners I choose. It's this understanding that enables you and me to make confident decisions. When you trust the advice you're getting, you know your next move is the right move. This is the power of being understood. This is McGladry. Assurance Tax Consulting. Many industries have been revolutionized by technology in the last decade. Books, music, TV, communications, and now it's happening to our money and the way we pay. Tune in to Breaking Banks with Brett King for a look at how technology and customer behavior will bring about more changes in banking in the next 10 years than in the last 200 years. Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific on Voice America Business Channel or on AM 1160 The Voice. You'll never look at your bank account the same again. If you want to learn how to be a better leader, increase your level of business performance, and motivate your team and organization more effectively, listen for Performing at Your Best, Mindset Evolution with Luis Vicente Garcia. 
Luis Vicente and his guests will share their expertise and enthusiasm in helping you to succeed. It's combining that drive with business skills that will do just that. Tune in live every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to The Second Stage. To reach the hosts or their guests today, call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to thesecondstage at evolutioncp.com. Now, back to Jeffrey Cadlick and Brendan Anderson. Welcome back to the second stage. I think I did forget to mention that Jeff is uh, out traveling, doing some work today. Bless his heart. Um, we are uh, here with uh, Spencer Williams, president and owner of Westpaw Design, a manufacturer of, of eco-friendly pet toys, beds uh, for dogs and cats. Um, and uh, when we last, last left, Spencer, we were talking about kind of open book management. And I, you know, Spencer, I, I still, I still kind of, you know, kind of question about, you know, kind of when it when it comes to open book and 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 getting over that hump. And you know, for the listeners out there, if you know, if they're like the people that I normally talk to, they're like. Spencer's lost his mind. There's no way I'm going to start sharing some of this stuff with my employees. Um, maybe talk about kind of what you share, what you don't share, and and uh, some kind of insights to to you know how you how you figured it out. You bet. Well, that's a great question. I think it's it, it can be a real challenge for people to get their mind around how how would I use Open Book to make my business more successful? And and the 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 first thing that I think a lot of people who practice Open Book management and financial uh, transparency in the organization realize is that. As I mentioned earlier, you don't share individual wages. Uh, that is a non-starter because those um, are individual, private uh, information. It's just like you wouldn't share somebody's healthcare status, right? That's a that's an individual status. So, so we don't go um, anywhere near compensation because it's it's um, for those reasons. But what we've realized is that what we do share is um, a more simplified. Uh, financial statement. And that doesn't mean we delete line items. <laughs> it means that we tend to roll line items up. So if I look at our company, P&L, there might be 50 lines on it. Uh, we want it to be about 10. And so it means that we're going to roll up some things. So um, for, for, for an example, you might have a one line that's about marketing. Whereas my P&L might have uh, marketing trade shows, marketing advertisement, right? Um, so you kind of roll those things up so it's a little bit easier to talk about bigger buckets with, an all, uh, with all, all the employees. And so we, uh, we have chosen, and most uh, people who practice open book management have chosen to share all the financial numbers, just not at micro-level details. Um, and then we find that uh, the other part of it is the, the regular meetings that really drives that rhythm of sharing information. Um, so we get together with all of the employees in our company every two weeks and all hands are on deck for that meeting. And it takes about 30 minutes. And so that's another investment in time. And, and that's another uh, concern that some people have. And, and I can talk more about that as well um, later. But uh, I would just end by saying that when you think about the, the opportunity um, to use numbers and meeting rhythms, you have to start first with education. Because the employees won't understand what's going on in the business unless you educate them. And it isn't at all because they're not intelligent. 
is because most of us, myself included, didn't go to school to learn about business accounting or finance. So we have to educate everybody so we're on the same page about what those financial numbers mean and what the business strategies are. Um, and then they can leverage that information more because what I feel in business today is that we want to distribute the opportunity to make the business better across many people in the organization, getting many ideas and having many hands doing the work instead of sort of this, this command and control top-down approach. And, um, and so open book management allows for a company to really engage a, a wider, more diverse group of people in getting good work done that helps to increase the performance of the company. So, Spencer, if, if, if let's say I have a manufacturing business that I've been a part owner for for let's let's guess say eighteen years, and let's say that uh, you know you've pretty much been doing the same things, and it's kind of looks like the same company after all these years, and and you wanted to, uh, by the way, all that stuff's true, um, and and you wanted to make a, uh, you know, and you wanted to start doing open book. How would you go about it? What, what would be like the first step be? Well. The first step would be to read The Great Game of Business by Jack Stack and Bo Burlingham. That book is time-tested. It's just been updated. It's a fantastic resource. Uh, then if, if you had the resources you, you uh, or had the funds available, you might consider hiring a Great Game of Business coach. Um, for us, that's what we did. Um, we, we had built a relationship some years ago with the people at Great Game of Business, and so it was really a natural fit to bring them on to help us uh, determine those next steps. However, I don't think you have to do that. I also think that if you read that book – and realize that you have to create a training program that is about um, your financials and your business strategies, that's a great place to start is creating that tra- training um, and how you would educate your employees. And remember that the employees you're starting with on day one when you kick off open book management are not the same employees you'll have a year later. So training is an ongoing pro- part of this process and really, really important. And and I think then the, after you figure out, like, what do you want to train people on and how are you going to present that information to them? Are you going to roll up some of the numbers on your financials so that there's not so many line items to talk about? You might also think about who's going to talk about what numbers because one thing we know is if, if the owner or the general manager or whomever is the one talking about every single number, it's just droning on and on and on. People don't want to have that. They want to have a more of a stimulating meeting, which means that the account holder, whoever's responsible for that number, let them speak to it. So if you've got a director of sales or a sales manager, let them talk about the sales number. you got somebody in manufacturing, let your manufacturing person talk about the gross profit number. And that really uh, helps to keep the meetings alive and also allows you the opportunity to bring those people who might be your spokespeople for those numbers into an earlier training program so that they're ready to roll it out to the company as a whole. And then finally, I think the, the last step is to make sure that you um, share your financials in a way that are in line with how your company works. So if you're um, like us, we've got most employees on one site, so we just created very large financials on whiteboards um, in our break room. And so we can use those over and over every month and uh, if you uh, have a lot of remote employees, you might think about creating a, um, a, virtual, a virtual way to, to meet about your financials um, that everybody can Skype into or, or, or uh, meet virtually and run through those. But it's not that hard to get started. What's important is to then get feedback from the employees and keep the training and keep the content fresh as you go forward, making sure to connect the actions people have taken, the examples that they have shown 
where the improvements can be made and talk about those with all staff because then people start to see, hey, if, if Frank can do that in that production line or Jane can do that on the sales team, then I can do something as well. And then you start having all the people in the company, as, uh, as many as possible, helping to pull the company forward and uh, create greater success for everybody. No, that's and that's great. The, when when you when you, so when you started it, you obviously had a pretty good culture, a culture that kind of it was sharing culture to start with, and then you obviously had read the book, and and, and so when you kind of started piecing this together, the the uh, the great game kind of uh, advisor kind of helped you think through through some of that stuff, or kind of all right, tell me tell me what they spend their most of their time doing, and, and ten, how long do you tend to work with that person for? Yeah, so we, we had worked uh, with a coach at the Great Game of Business. He's actually the president of the Great Game of Business, uh, Rich Armstrong, and Rich mm-hmm. has been really helpful. He and I had formed a relationship years ago, and, and so when we decided to implement this, he decided that he'd be our coach, which was, which was wonderful. But they have so many great coaches there. Um, and his role was to help us answer those questions about how would we present the financials, which accounts should we roll up, gave us a lot of advice on that, but he also gave some advice on who might be the spokesperson for those numbers and who should be in that initial training. And some of that we did just over conference calls, right, and shared files back and forth. It wasn't um, a lot of time or it wasn't a, a lot of visiting and travel costs. But when it came to training our management staff, um, we had about 10 or 12 people who, who are um, uh, responsible for those accounts, he came out to our factory in Bozeman and did some financial literacy training with that staff. And those trainings helped to bring that team's uh, knowledge of the financials to a higher level so that when they had questions from their team members, they could answer them uh, with more accuracy and more confidence, yep. right? Um, so then we also, as we got further along, we started uh, – desiring to also bring more strategy decision-making to all of our employees in the company. And, and he had had experience doing that um, as well um, from his years working at SRC. And uh, so he came out and helped the, the sales, the marketing teams, put together the first presentations on the high-involvement planning sessions that we now do with all of our, uh, all of our staff. Um, to educate them on our marketplace, the competitors, the opportunities we see, um, and where the growth is going to come from. Uh, he had helped us with uh, getting that template put together. And, um, and you know, what's nice about the folks at the Great Game of Business is if they are uh, called in as a consultant and a coach, they don't want to be on a continuous drip feed. They want to get in there, help you figure it out, and get out of the way so you can go on and run your business the way you want to run it. And so um, they helped us for the first year um, on and off, and then uh, – Less so now, which is awesome. You mentioned, uh, excuse me, SRC, which is Springfield Remanufacturing Corporation, and it's and you, know, you think about it, when you go out there and you meet entrepreneurs and talk about how you know that they're in a tough industry, that they're in a you know kind of a capital intensive industry, or they've got all these crazy, crazy you know or horrible customers or whatever, you know you you uh, and you know so they can't do some of the things you're talking about, and then you look at what you know what uh, Jack Stack and the team did at SRC, you know, and it's a you know in, in my opinion from afar pretty tough industry where, you know, you're rebuilding uh, diesel engines and so forth. I mean, that just the, probably, uh, you know, just one of the most amazing stories of growth in a comp- in an industry that just from afar appear- appears very, very difficult to do. And, they, and they've just done an unbelievable job, uh, you know, just, un- just really proof that, you know, when you jump in with both feet, this, this stuff works. 
Let me ask you this. So the number one thing, if you had to say the most important component of a company uh, to be successful in open book management, what would you say that, that that number one most important thing would be? Be successful in open book management, I think the number one thing is to be authentic. Uh, what I mean with that is that the company and its leadership has to be authentic to the purpose. Uh, when you implement as a, as a leader in a company open book, it's not so that you can just simply milk the gains or, you know, get everybody to work harder. It really has to be for a reason that aligns your entire organization, and you have to be true to that. For us, what we wanted to create was that opportunity for shared leadership and diversifying the decision-making as well as the impacts we can have on the business with everybody here. That makes their work more fulfilling, and it makes the company more successful. So I would say that as, as somebody thinks about, gosh, am I going to do open book management or not, they have to really find out why and be able to communicate that very clearly to the employees because only then will they buy into the decision to go with open book management. So how do you get that trust? Maybe tell me you know, some stories you can tell me. Or, I mean, because the trust thing is a, is it them trusting you or, or really both, does it go both ways? No, I think that relationships in a, in a company, it is a two-way street. Um, and I think that strong relationships and, and uh, past experiences build trust in a company. And um, uh, Patrick Lencioni's books, um, touch on this a lot, uh, but it's uh, the power of trust in a company is, is something that can continue to grow over time, but you can also lose trust over time. And it does depend on what's being said and what's being done. And so when you ask me what's the most important thing, that's why I mentioned authenticity, is that um, you can say one thing and do another, vice versa, right? So um, what, what I think we, we want uh, great leadership to do is to come to us with a convic- uh, with conviction around an idea, let's just say open book management, clearly articulate why that's important and then follow through. And here's the challenge, is if an employee in one of those open book meetings says, I believe we should um, make uh, a new product that has these benefits and will increase our profitability, uh, and the leadership team, the management team ignores that idea, meaning doesn't ever get back to them, doesn't give them feedback on that, uh, there goes some trust out, just blew out the window. When an employee has a concern or an idea, you have to be responsive to it. And it's okay to say, gosh, that's a great idea to consider. I don't have an answer for you right now. I'll get back to you in a month. It's okay to get back to them later. It doesn't mean you have to do it on the, in, the, in the moment. But it, it does mean you have to get back to people with feedback. Um, and so that helps to build trust. And so I think the employees uh, are looking to give uh uh, ideas and improvements to to um, each other and to the company, and in turn, the company and, and the leadership has to respond. So it is a two-way street. But I also do think, from from my standpoint as as an owner and CEO, I I look for the employees to be really engaged. Uh, we're we're not doing this open book management practice just to make sure that. Um, an employee knows the company is in good financial health and their paycheck is going to keep coming. That's, that's nice for the employee to know. But what, what I expect and make clear is that this means we all have to work 
in alignment with each other. We have to work hard for those gains. We have to look for those improvements. We have to seek out continuous improvement and implement change. Um, that's, it's, a, it's a give and take, and I think that's really an important part of it. And when that works well, trust grows. And I think the culture gets stronger. And uh, we have seen it uh, at Westpaw, um, and, uh, and it, really, it really can make the company more productive and also a better place to work. No, that's great. It's uh, you know you uh, what uh, Stephen Covey Jr.'s the speed of trust and and you know that whole thing. It's it's a uh, it's an elusive thing, but it, I guess it does come down to being authentic and uh, you know it's kind of uh, you know it's showing people that you're going to act the same way whether they're looking, not looking, or or you know it's it's really who you are is an important thing. We're going to take another uh, another quick break. Uh, when we get back, I'm looking forward to learning about B corporations, which. Uh, you know, I probably can count on one hand or a couple fingers uh, how many uh, B Corporation uh, leaders I've, we've met. And uh, when we get back, I'll, uh, you can tell us you can tell us what that is and kind of how uh, how it's helped you guys uh, uh, you know grow the business and so forth. Um, and uh, with that, we will uh, be back in a in a couple minutes. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. This is Davis Love III, Ryder Cup captain and Team McGladry member. McGladry is about building relationships. That's the kind of team I want to be a part of, a team that builds deep understanding of each client's vision and unique way of doing business. The same attributes I look for and the partners I choose. It's this understanding that enables you and me to make confident decisions. When you trust the advice you're getting, you know your next move is the right move. This is the power of being understood. This is McGladry. Assurance Tax Consulting. It's time to take charge of your own career path. But how do you get started? First, tune in to The Career Confidant with Marie Zimanoff. Each show will feature national business leaders, tips and insight from Marie and her guests, career management tools, and a weekly career smart tip. She'll help you move forward, earn that promotion, get hired into the career you want, and brand yourself. The Career Confidant is broadcast live every Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are tuned in to The Second Stage. To reach the hosts or their guests today, call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to thesecondstage at evolutioncp.com. Now, back to Jeffrey Cadlick and Brendan Anderson. It's uh, Brendan Anderson. Thanks for coming back to The Second Stage. We're on with uh, Spencer Williams, the president and owner of Westpaw Design. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, Jeff is uh, out and about, uh, hopefully uh, getting some, uh, finding some great entrepreneurs and some uh, wonderful, uh, passionate investors. The uh, as I when we uh, left you a couple minutes ago, I promised we would get back and jump into um, B Corps. Spencer, what the heck is a B Corp? Has gone through a third-party rigorous assessment run by B Lab. Um, and scored at 80 or higher on that assessment. And um, that assessment is, is, is like an ISO certification, um, for those familiar with that, uh, the International Standards Organization. So it's really robust. And when you get an 80, 
a score of 80 or higher, then you can opt to uh, be a certified B Corp. And uh, in order to go to that next stage, it's a small annual fee to help pay for the assessment updates and the work that they do behind the scenes at B Lab. Um, and then, uh, and 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 then you can claim to be a certified B Corp. Um, we are also a benefit corporation, uh, which is a little bit different. Um, also, I just assumed B Corp meant benefit, so uh, maybe explain. <laughs> yeah, you could explain well, that a little bit more too. It can be a little confusing. Um, so, the it, to be a certified B Corp, as I mentioned, the, there is this assessment, and you're right. The B does stand for benefit. Um, oh, good. But uh, but it is a certified B Corp, and um, there's a certification process. To be a benefit corporation, however, is different. There is no certification behind that. That is something that is uh, in um, in the legislation of each state, and it, it requires registration with the Secretary of State. So that is uh, dependent upon the laws that govern. Um, corporations in the various states, and uh, Montana passed the law um, to allow for benefit corporations uh, uh, a year ago, and we were Montana's first. It, it really means that you're going to be able to, to uh, go back to the Secretary of State and refile your articles of incorporation, and in your, in your uh, corporation, you're going to have a defined or general benefit to something that is then um, something you have to report out on as you as you do your corporate documents year after year. Well, so what so what corporate thing? It's it's you know part of it sounds a little crazy. So what do you have to what do you have to report? And maybe talk a little bit more about kind of when you go through the certification, what what you had to do, what are they looking for, and you know what is it that yeah, and maybe you know, what what and what do they want to see? Yeah. Well, the most important thing um, around being a certified B Corp is how you can take your company as a member of this of this movement and bring positive change through business, right? So how can the business affect this positive change? Um, and, and, and really, they, they, they did an amazing job of creating an assessment that pushes organizations like Westpaw Design to improve and to make a difference. Um, when we talk about being uh, registered with the Secretary of State as a benefit corporation, that is to, to keep our company... Um, aligned to our vision and purpose and to uh, create um, some uh, safety around our mission not being uh, thrown out the window just for the sake of profits. Okay? But when it comes to the ability to really measure improvement, that's where a certified B Corp is really powerful because the assessment that is there uh, is robust. It takes a lot of time to fill out. Um, for us, it takes uh, when I first did it several years ago, 2013, we became a, a certified B Corp. And I went through most of the assessment process myself with a lot of help from staff. It took me probably about 15 hours of work. That's quite a big investment. But here's the benefit is not only do you receive the opportunity to, to, to market your company as a certified B Corp, but you also now have a very robust benchmarking tool. And that benchmarking tool is looking at at areas that are really important in business. It's how do you, how do you impact your workers and as a company? How do you impact your community? How do you impact the environment? Um, and then finally, you know, how, how is the company governed and run? Um, those are all things that you can improve upon as an organization. And, and when, you have, uh, when you proceed uh, with a certified B Corp, you also agree to recertify it every two years. 
So Westpaw Design has already been able to see how we can make improvements in the company using a certification tool like the one from, from Certified B Corp. Um, so w- what I think is really great is when you think about any one of those areas, whether it's community or workers or the environment, in business today, most businesses want to positively impact one or all of those areas. And uh, if you're in a business that can have an impact, why not measure it? And why not figure out how to make it even better? And then if you want, market that story to your customers and join the movement of other successful businesses like Westpaw Design or uh, Ben & Jerry's or Patagonia, Method Cleaning Products. These are all amazing companies, and they're all certified B Corps. So when you say you measure um, impacts on community and the workers' environment, can you give me some idea of like how, how do they how do you is that something that metrics that you come up with or that that the that the B Corp uh, uh, you know uh, regulators they, 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 I mean how do you how do you come up with that how do you track that Yeah, that's a great question because the assessment has to be uh, applied uniformly across different businesses, and that's why the assessment has. Had gotten so many years of work put into it by B Lab, the company behind the organization, the nonprofit, who's behind this assessment. Just uh, like an ISO certification has years of work to make sure it's a credible tool. And so the questions they ask Westpaw Design are the same questions they're going to ask another manufacturer. But what we have seen is a tangible improvement in how we run business. And you might think, well, well, the environment. Give me one that really helps your business be better. And I'll choose one. It's energy. Our business consumes a lot of electricity. Uh, we, we run a large production floor with a lot of lights, and we also have air conditioning units to keep it comfortable for our staff, and we also use injection molding. Injection molding consumes a lot of electricity to heat the plastic. So electricity consumption is, is a cost to the business. It's also a cost to the environment. Since becoming a certified B Corp., the team that sprung up out of that movement was an employee-driven team around the environment, and they tackle energy. And so they did something real simple. They posted energy-saving reminders by all light switches. Very simple act. Somebody had to get behind it. I didn't ask anybody to do it. They did it on their own because they wanted to improve our score. Uh, that helped us reduce our energy along with changing the lighting schedule for things like our parking lot. There's no reason to have our lights on all night if, there, if there's no cars in the parking lot. Maybe we should need some, you know, limited security lighting. Great. All of those savings added up to a tangible dollar saving from 2013 to 2015 on electricity consumed per unit produced, which is how we measure it. So for every unit of toys and beds that we manufacture, how much energy went into that? And it dropped. So that's having an impact on the bottom line, but it's also having an impact by improving our certified B Corp score. And that score is important to us because we, again, have to be 80 or higher, but it's also published on the website for bcorporation.net. So our customers can see that, and we want them to see that we're improving our score. So you see that's just one example of how the assessment really links to tangible improvements by employees, and it is motivated from them in our company, which is wonderful, and it's saving money on the bottom line. It's a good thing. Those are the kind of examples I really like because those are, you know, there's, it's, it's some, you know, it's, it's tangible, right? And so, and, and I don't want to keep putting you on the spot, but I, I think that those, these are important things. So when it comes to, you know, uh, when it comes to community or the, or the, or the workforce or something like that, can you, do you have some other things that companies have done or you guys have done? Cause I think that's, I mean, that, 
the, the last example was great. Well, yeah, I have another great one then for you because our employees um, uh, have said, you know, we want, we want to help engage in our community in some way. But we didn't really know how to do that. What's that mean? You know, we, we do some, some support for the Humane uh, Society here. We do some support for, for um, uh, some of the, the, the children and some of the women's organizations in town that do great work. And employees were wondering, how do we, how do we, how do we be a, a, a part of that? How can we be uh, contributing? Well, using the B Corp assessment, there is a best practice module. And we were able to, to download some best practices that were posted by other B Corps around compensating employees for volunteerism and creating a system for people to um, also uh, make donations to their uh, nonprofit and having the company match that. So, wow, you know, we got that for free from the assessment. We didn't have to create our own policies. We were able to just tweak somebody else's great policy mm-hmm. and put that into place. That saves overhead time. Um, and our employees are now getting compensated for a day's worth of work per year um, out in the community. And what we have found is, of course, that not every employee can be out in the community volunteering, but those who can and want to are really benefiting from from that, both in terms of compensation but also um, joy that it brings into the workforce. And we find that those community outreach programs have been really um, successful. I'll give you a good example. We have an amazing... Um, a cafe here in town, and um, and it it serves meals for free. Um, you only pay if you if you want to or can. And uh, the community cafe has um, a consistent need for volunteers to come serve meals to any patron who walks in. It's a sit down dinner. You serve them meals and um, and greet them, and uh, and and that takes a big staff. So we have people who are just in line waiting to come and be a part of the team that's going to work at Community Cafe. And what I see when I'm there helping is the employees are fired up and excited about working with each other to benefit the community. And the next day at the office and on the factory floor, you know what you hear people talking about? That was such a great time together. We had so much fun. We helped so many people. And, uh, you know, we feel great about what we do in our company. Well, that has a tangible impact on our day-to-day work life and culture here at West Pot Design. And so we wouldn't be as far as we are in helping the community had it not been for the simple templates and best practices we get from the B Corp assessment. That's great. And when, and, and then, so is it something that, that, so every person, every one of the employees gets, gets a, a certain amount of time and, um, and you said that some some people take advantage of it, some people don't. Is part of the assessment, you know, I'm just trying to get a, um, a feeling, is how many people take advantage of it, or, or, or how do you, or how does, I mean, I'm, how, do, how do they track that stuff? That's a great question, and uh, the specificity of that answer, I, I couldn't tell you for sure, because there's so many questions in the assessment, but I think that the assessment asks something around, do you have a way to compensate employees for community volunteerism? yes or no. And by simply implementing that program, we can check yes. And then okay. they might say, how, you know, how many days or how many hours per year do you compensate employees? Is it between, you know, one and eight hours? Is it between nine and 16 hours? Is it, and then you can check the box. Probably if they had a question like that, which they might, the, the more you compensate for um, employees to work and in community volunteerism, maybe that would impact your score in a positive way. 
Does in in it's it is I mean it's kind of funny because I think a lot of entrepreneurs sit there and think, including myself, you know, you know, just we got to get these things done, and 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 they want their people to to give. Um, but do do you do, can they give to any cause, or, is there, or does the company tend to pick a couple or kind of couple three four based on their values, or is it kind of up to each company? You know, we we had thought about if if we put in a a, a matching a fund matching program, you know. Should the company sort of do a list of of organizations that that we want to support and then ask for employees we 'd match it and it just didn 't seem right to us. It seemed like if somebody worked at Westpaw Design and they had a non profit and maybe it 's their church maybe it 's a a youth organization, who are we to say it 's not a great outfit and so we had to put the trust and we were talking about trust earlier weren 't we and, and Brennan, I think it 's so important. So we had to trust our employees that they would choose good organizations and then we would match their money. Um, and so we put it up to the employees that you choose the organization as long as it's a nonprofit, we'll support you. And that allows for a diversity of opinion about where that money goes. And, and we have a diverse group here. We want to support everybody. And that's a good way to do it. But we also realized that we couldn't have a really large amount. We, we couldn't give $500 per employee. That's just, we just didn't have the resources to do that. And yeah. so we set a lower giving amount and people take advantage of it because every dollar matters. Spencer, I got, we got about a minute and a half and I, I got to ask you the question. So this B Corp thing, how do you how do you know it's better? How, how do you how do you how can you tell me that it was a worth your time, worth your investment? How do you know? I know that being a certified B Corp is better for my organization because number one, I've seen employee engagement increase around the environment, community, and workers. Those are all important areas in our business. That's a great thing. That makes us more successful. I've also seen our improvements on the assessment. In, uh, grow over time due to the hard work of employees. So I'm seeing tangible, measurable results. Three, as a company, we want to differentiate our company as a whole, not just the product we manufacture, but our company and the way it's run from all of the other companies out there that make pet products. And it's a great marketing opportunity for us to transparently say, we're a certified B Corp. That means you can buy with confidence. You can check out how we run the company in these transparent rating rankings that are published online for anybody to look at. And so that validates our marketing. So for those three reasons, I think being a certified B Corp has made a positive financial impact on the company. The fourth reason I'm going to give to you is that as an organization, I feel we're part of a movement that is really gaining steam to help use the power of business for good in the world. And that makes us all feel really good here. Well, Spencer, I thank you so much for uh, for for uh, talking to us in the second stage. I love your story. Love what you've done here, and uh, congratulations on the wonderful success. And thanks for participating in the second stage. For everybody else out welcome. there, you know, passion for possibilities. Look what Spencer did with uh, with his with his uh, with his passion. Thank you again. Uh, tune in next week for uh, the second stage. Thank you for tuning in this week to the second stage. Please join Jeffrey Cadlick and Brendan Anderson again next Monday afternoon at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And have a successful week.